Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This program is about President Trump's connections to Russia, and in particular, Paul Manafort. Manafort was the manager of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign until he abruptly quit two and a half months prior to the election. We ask, who is Paul Manafort? Where did he come from? And how did he become Trump's campaign manager? What aspects of Manafort's longtime relationship with Russian leaders and President Trump might be revealed in the pending hearings conducted by the House of Representatives Intelligence Committee? Our guest, Andrew Kramer, a native of Ukiah, California, is a New York Times reporter based in Moscow, Russia. Kramer, fluent in Russian, has been reporting from Moscow for The Times since 2006. This interview is the second in what may become an ongoing series of conversations with Andrew Kramer about Russia. When he and I visited by phone from his office in Moscow on March 27, 2017, we began when I asked him, who is Paul Manafort? Manafort, um, in his own words, is a campaign professional. This is how he describes his work. He's been a, a consultant, uh, a pollster, uh, a spin doctor, an influence peddler uh, for, for four decades, working in the United States for U.S. Republicans and working abroad for uh, a number of authoritarian leaders. Uh, he got his start in the United States uh, in the 1970s working for Gerald Ford, uh, and he worked abroad uh, for Marcos in the Philippines, uh, uh, for uh, uh, Seco Seke in, in Congo, and I may have bungled that, that name a bit, um, and then most recently for uh, Yanukovych uh, in Ukraine. He has a, a, tr- a track record of combining these two areas of expertise, political consulting abroad, and at home for Republicans. How did Paul Manafort become Trump's campaign manager? Well, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty uh, about exactly how uh, he got in touch with the Trump campaign. I have heard that he was uh, advised, uh, that Trump was advised to hire him by Richard Burke, a former ambassador to to Russia um, and uh, also a lobbyist now in Washington. Um, In any case, Manafort was brought on to the Trump campaign first uh, as a, a wrangler of delegates in the convention before it was clear that Trump would win the Republican convention uh, because this is the role that Manafort had played in, in past uh, Republican conventions. Uh, only later was he hired as campaign chairman, uh, replacing Lewandowski, who was shunted aside during this reshuffle in June and July uh, of last year. When you characterize him as a wrangler of delegates, uh, that's someone who uh, uh, herds the delegates together and seeks to command their support, in this case, for Trump. Well, that's right. It's, it's a, a bit of an arcane uh, specialty in, in U.S. politics because most political conventions are decided before the convention opens. 
Um, I, I, I don't know when the last contested convention was, but it, it's, it's been a while back. Um, for example, I attended the Democratic convention in Boston uh, for John Kerry, where John Kerry was anointed as the uh, candidate for, for the Democrats in 2004. And in, in that instance, everything was decided in advance, and the entire uh, event was choreographed from, from start to finish. Uh, in, in other conventions where uh, a candidate might not have the delegates to win outright, um, there could be multiple votes on the floor. And in this case, uh, a candidate will need an experienced political advisor uh, who will be able to uh, work the room and ensure that this candidate has sufficient votes to win the convention, something like uh, the job of a whip in, in, in Parliament or in Congress, but only for the specific instance of, of the convention. From your perspective and your research about Paul Manafort, uh, would you say those skills carry over into the work that he's been doing in Russia the past number of years? Well, he worked in, in uh, Ukraine for pro-Russian uh, political parties, um, and he represented this work as uh, consulting. In other words, he would be consulting for uh, the, the government of Ukraine or for uh, the, a political party, the Party of Regions, uh, or the president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych. He didn't say that he was lobbying in the United States for these interests, because that would require uh, filing paperwork with, with the Department of Justice uh, under the FARA Act, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, which he did not do. And it's a matter of, con of con some controversy whether he, in fact, lobbied on behalf of, of these Ukrainian clients in the United States or not. Uh, his representation is that his work in Ukraine was uh, uh, involved such things as advice on messaging, uh, interpreting polls, and uh, running a U.S.-style campaign, so ensuring that uh, the image and the, and the message of the campaign was clear and, and, and properly conveyed. Uh, he says this was the nature of his work. You have been uh, reporting on Paul Manafort extensively for the past uh, year or more in the New York Times, where you work in, in Moscow as a reporter. And what is your take on his denial that he was uh, lobbying for the Russian interests in the U.S.? I think there's been information that, that's come out that in, indicates that he was lobbying uh, on behalf of, of various foreign interests and didn't uh, register as a foreign agent as required, um, which would be not a significant offense and, in fact, something that's rarely prosecuted in the U.S., uh, but politically very significant because of the allegations of ties between the Trump campaign and, and Russia uh, and perhaps any collusion between Trump campaign officials, such as the chairman, uh, Paul Manafort, and, and Russian intelligence agencies um, in meddling in, in the U.S. election. So uh, he, his work has been closely scrutinized in, in this light. Uh, the Associated Press last week reported that uh, Paul Manafort had a contract to lobby the interests of, of a Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska. Uh, he is a large aluminum and, and manufacturing tycoon in, in Russia. And according to a memo that Manafort wrote to Deripaska, he would also represent the interests of the Russian government uh, in the United States and, and other areas where Deripaska had business interests, um, including Ukraine and other former Soviet countries. Uh, it's not clear exactly what he did, but if he were lobbying on behalf of, of the Russian government, he would be required to file FARA paperwork with the Department of Justice. Uh, he also um, helped organize meetings for a um, visit by uh, President Yanukovych 
uh, to the United States to an anti-proliferation conference in New York, working with U.S. officials and liaisoning uh, with U.S. officials for the Ukrainian president, which would be uh, uh, you know, a clear representation of a, of a foreign government. Um, nonetheless, uh, as I said, he, he's asserted that he was not required to, to file those FAR papers. Do you agree with his assertion? Well, it's, it's not really uh, my place to, uh, to make a, a legal assessment here. Um, the interesting thing politically, I think, is, is the, the way that even potentially innocuous actions have been denied um, by Manafort and others in, in the Trump team, almost making the situation worse politically. If he had simply come forward and volunteered the information that he was lobbying on behalf of a Russian oligarch and possibly the Russian government, uh, this might have appeared politically uh, more acceptable than this information only coming out as a result of investigative journalism. The Associated Press article to which you just referred of, I believe, March 22nd, just a week ago, March 22nd, 2017, says that the day before, Spicer, the president's press secretary, said Manafort, quote, had a very limited role uh, for a very limited amount of time. Do you think those words, very limited, are carefully chosen? Because it could be it could be limited to topics and a period of time, and the topics could be many, and the period of time could be a long time. Well, I, I think that that's, that's dissembling. Uh, uh, Manafort was the chairman of, of President Trump's campaign. There, there could be nobody uh, in the campaign who had a larger role, in fact, than, than Manafort. Um, to, so to say that he had a limited role when he was chairman would be incorrect. So in a sense, the question then becomes, uh, for uh, President Trump, what did he know and when did he know it about the work that Manafort was doing? Can you address that? Uh, Well, that's right. I I think that that Trump has said he was, in vague terms, aware of of Manafort's work um, as a lobbyist uh, for for foreign interests for um, political parties in Ukraine. The, the key question is what these previous ties means, mean for any potential contacts uh, during the campaign with the Russian government, with Russian officials, and, and particularly any coordination on uh, the hacking and, and release of embarrassing documents um, that, that are seen to have hurt the Democratic campaign and possibly helped uh, get Trump elected. So if as the FBI is investigating um, there were contacts uh, uh, between members of the campaign and, and Russia, and, and President Trump knew about them. Obviously, that, that would be a, uh, an issue of grave concern. And then that's uh, really at the heart of the House investigation, the Senate investigation, as well as the FBI investigation. The uh, House Intelligence Committee chair, Nunes, was reported to have been at the White House the day before he revealed that he had actually met with Trump on this issue. Uh, do you have any background on that? No, I, I'm uh, really I'm reporting these issues from the former Soviet space, um, which is my, my territory and my beat. Um, so my work on uh, Paul Manafort has mostly been confined to what he was doing in Ukraine and what uh, documents and officials uh, in Ukraine um, show about about that work and about ties to uh, these Russian leading politicians in that country. So, what, what's been happening uh, in Washington? There's a lot of movement, but I, I haven't I haven't been reporting that and don't have a, a great deal of insight on that myself. 
um, obviously the, the the concern with with the investigation is that as the chairman is Republican that that um, he would be inclined to defend uh, the president who's a member of his party rather than impartially investigate him uh, in in this uh, uh, committee in, in the um, in the house um, so uh, the question is whether um, many of these uh, these details and and what they imply about what may have happened during the campaign uh, could simply never come to light and, and and people would not know in this edition of radio curious we're visiting by phone with Andrew Kramer a Moscow-based reporter for the New York Times this is radio curious I'm Barry Vogel um, Andrew the issue of um, Russian meddling in the in the counting of the U.S. election vote last November, how does what you've been sharing with us link in to uh, the vote count? Well, there's never been any indication that the count itself was tampered with. Um, the the investigation rather is into whether the um, the, the Russian hacking and and, and um, strategically timed release of of documents was done by the Russian intelligence agencies in collusion with members of, of Trump's campaign. And it's an interesting question, obviously, and a very important question. One way in which Paul Manafort's work in Ukraine sheds light on this is it, Paul Manafort uh, was an advisor on three campaigns inside Ukraine, working for a pro-Russian party, the Party of Regions, so the 2006, uh, 2007 parliamentary elections in, in Ukraine and 2010 presidential election, which went through two rounds. So in, in total, four votes, but three campaigns. Um, in, in all of those instances, Russia played a very important role. Russia is Ukraine's neighbor um, and, and has a lot of levers of influence in Ukraine. Businessmen with ties to Russia own media, for example, in Ukraine. Um, and, and Russia has economic means of influence um, so in these campaigns, Russia was, was a very large backdrop, um, and uh, I don't think if you ask any Ukrainian political analyst, uh, I think most of them would say that, that Russia was certainly meddling in, in those elections in Ukraine, elections in which Manafort was a consultant. So it, this idea of Russia as, as a force to be reckoned with in an election would not be an alien one to Paul Manafort. Something in which he has many years of experience. Uh, indeed, I, I've spoken with members of his team in Ukraine, and they they say they had no no involvement whatsoever with various dirty tricks that have been tied to the Russians in in relation to those elections. And, uh, in in the Ukrainian context, these include, as I said, uh, an energy embargo that preceded the 2006 election and the 2010 election, and other sort of lower altitude uh, maneuvers such as hiring people to ride the buses or the subways in cities and speak loudly about the opponent making baseless accusations. So there are very grassroots dirty tricks in those Ukrainian elections, as well as computer hacking and, and uh, planting of fake news. And the people with whom you spoke uh, are Russian or Ukrainian people? Well, I, I've spoken with um, Americans who work for, for Mr. Manafort in, in Ukraine and still work in Ukraine, um, and also uh, with a, a Russian citizen who was Manafort's office manager this this individual, uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, was, was under investigation in Ukraine from August until December of last year for being a Russian spy, a Russian intelligence agent. Uh, that investigation closed without any charges being pressed, 
But interestingly, uh, Manafort had remained in contact with Konstantin Kalimnik um, through the U.S. election period, and uh, Manafort uh, denies that he was ever knowingly in, in contact with Russian intelligence agencies um, during the U.S. campaign. Um, but there is that, that one contact, uh, once again, based on these public records in Ukraine uh, regarding his former office manager. What can you share with us of Donald Trump's personal connections to Russia and Ukraine? Well, this has obviously been an issue of, of interest and something that comes up from time to time in our bureau. And it looks like he, he looked a number of times at possibly investing in, in Moscow, building a hotel, um, and nothing ever came through. In 2013, he hosted a, a beauty pageant in, in Russia, the Miss Universe contest, which he owned. The, the larger issue seems to be Russian investments into the Trump organization rather than Trump organization's investments into Russia. And the indications there are that a, a number of wealthy Russians have bought properties from Trump, most notably a, a Russian uh, fertilizer oligarch uh, named Reba Lovlev, who bought a house from Donald Trump in Florida that was, it was worth something like uh, $95 million, and he paid about half of that. I don't know the exact figure, but about half of that was profit for Trump. He flipped the house, uh, which was bought at maybe $45 million for that larger sum. So that's one indication that, that Russian money was flowing into the organization. Now, this happened in 2008. Over the past 15 years or so, many Russians have bought property from, from Trump. From your perspective, Manafort's connections with Russia and Ukraine, pro and con, uh, what effect do you see they have on uh, Donald Trump's ability to continue to act and govern uh, as president in our country? Well, I think that one implication is that um, Trump ran on in a campaign in which he, he said that as, as a foreign policy position, he would like to mend fences with Russia to improve relations with Russia and then uh, together with Russia fight uh, the Islamic State. That was his stated goal and he won an election. He won the electoral vote, in any case, in, in the U.S. election on that platform. And it's now difficult for him to carry that out because of this, this Russian controversy. In other words, he, he may want to improve relations with Russia, but that will be difficult because of these allegations of, of Russian meddling in U.S. elections. So in the short term, the Russian interference may have backfired in this fight. Longer term, We'll see what, what happens, but there are indications that, that the Trump administration is entertaining a number of peace plans in Ukraine that would then uh, allow a rollback of sanctions and, and improve relations. On another topic, uh, Andrew Kramer, this past weekend, uh, March 25th and March 26th of 2017, there have been rallies in Russia reportedly unsanctioned by the government. Uh, I find it uh, uh, two questions. Uh, one, what were those rallies about? Well, the, the rallies were uh, organized by uh, Alexei Navalny, uh, an opposition figure uh, in, in Russia. The main issue is, is fighting corruption. So it was a rally against corruption. And out of, uh, I think, maybe 100 cities where they had uh, the, his supporters had applied for uh, a parade permit, um, they were granted a, a prominent or, or acceptable location um, in, in maybe uh, 20 or so, and, and not in, in uh, the capital, in Moscow, which is the most politically important location in Russia. And uh, the, the rule is that any protest that involves more than one person requires a permit. 
Um, in other words, it's possible to stand on the street alone as a form of protest, but once two people are standing together, that would be a violation uh, so long as there's no permit, and this is strictly enforced. Uh, now, there's some question about whether the law applies to standing or walking. Uh, in other words, if you're walking as a group, that may not require, uh, in all cases, permits. Now, I don't know the, the exact specifics, but uh, what Alexei Navalny settled on was a, uh, a walk uh, on the sidewalk of the main shopping street in Moscow that would move counterclockwise up one side of the sidewalk and down the other over a space of about a mile. And so when I went out on Sunday, this is what I saw happening, people walking all in one direction on the street. And this is a classic form of protest or genre of, of protest for authoritarian countries where it's difficult to obtain permits, um, where a protest will take place in what's called a dilemma action. It's uh, something that's seemingly so innocuous the government, if it cracks down, might look ridiculous. On the other hand, if they don't crack down, they might look weak. Um, in in uh, countries like Belarus, you see people timing the alarms on their cell phone to go off at the same time and then standing on a street corner and letting that happen, um, where it's clear that the message is, is an anti-government message of some sort, but uh, it's unclear what law might be violated. And on a larger scale, this is what was happening uh, in Moscow on Sunday. When you reference a permit being needed for um, more than one person standing, uh, protesting, being strictly enforced, what is the nature of the enforcement? Arrest. Immediate? Um, carried off from the site? Uh, pr pretty much. If it's a politically sensitive issue or, or, uh, or location, and, and another trick which I've seen is that sometimes a pro-Kremlin activist will stand next to an anti-government activist, thus creating a protest of two, and police will arrest both of them, thwarting the efforts of the anti-government activist to stand alone on the street and protest. It's very strictly enforced, and the concern in, in, among Russian authorities is that uh, protest movement might gain momentum here, as, as happened in Ukraine, eventually threatening the stability of the government. So when you describe the walking protest as a dilemma action, that's different because they're moving, but the substance is pretty similar. Well, that's right. And once again, I'm not, I'm not certain of the rules on, on moving versus stationary, but that was one aspect of the protest on, on Sunday. Um, it was not gathering in any specific location, but rather walking on the sidewalk, which anybody presumably would have the right to do. And yet, at the same time, it conveys a very clear anti-government message. You know, I've seen similar um, actions with Navalny. Um, for example, there's a prohibition against setting up tents or any sort of encampment that's also very strictly enforced. And at one point, um, several years ago, uh, his supporters put yoga mats on the ground and sat down. Um, and the question became, is this uh, an encampment or some sort of attempt to, to, to settle into this space much as the, the tent encampments in, in Kiev became very important politically uh, during the uh, Maidan protests, or, or is it allowed to sit on a yoga mat in a park? And uh, the immediate response from the Russian authorities was to, to spray the whole area with, well, not exactly a fire hose, but a, a truck with a cistern that had a spraying system on it um, and, and to drench everybody. So there was no uh, acceptance of these tactics and, and, and in fact, uh, a swift crackdown. Uh, Andrew Kramer, in the 10 years or so that you have been resident in Moscow as a reporter for the Times Moscow Bureau, have you experienced any limitation on where you went or with whom you spoke? 
Um, uh, in fact, uh, uh, none, none that I can that I can recall. Uh, there have been uh, limited times in, in regard to reporting in the North Caucasus, which includes Chechnya and, and is a, um, uh, an area where um, uh, and there's an Islamic insurgency and, and a terrorism threat, and the government is very sensitive about reporting um, in these areas on human rights issues. Um, I, I was arrested there and, and, um, and uh, told to leave uh, after being detained for um, about half a day, told to leave the area. So that, that would be one example. But uh, that was in the very specific context of um, a, a genuine, uh, uh, a genuine uh, insurgency threat uh, in Russia, much as the rules for reporting, for example, uh, in Iraq might, might be quite a bit different um, for an American reporter than, than reporting in, in the United States. And I've, I've worked in Iraq as well. So you, you have to obtain permission from uh, military commanders to, to work alongside the troops and, and so on. Uh, but o overall, uh, foreign reporters have, have only on rare occasions been, uh, been interfered with. Do you have any reason to believe that there uh, might be interception to our conversation now? Well, I, I think there certainly could be. Um, the question for journalists uh, often becomes, why would we care? If the conversation will be on the radio in any case, they could listen to it on the radio or they could get an, an advanced um, uh, preview by uh, listening to it now. And uh, similar calculus goes into um, my thinking when I'm talking to uh, interviewing people on the telephone, for example. Now, as an international phone call, this would be uh, fair game for uh, for the U.S. Um, to uh, intercept um, as well as for the Russians. And finally, uh, Andrew Kramer, I want to thank you for being with us uh, again on Radio Curious. And for our listeners who are curious about Andrew Kramer's uh, eureka moments or what he chooses to do with the remainder of his life, I invite you to listen to our first interview with him that was published on January 3rd, 2017. But, Andrew, I'd like to ask you if there's another book that you could recommend to our listeners. Well, um, certainly. Uh, there's a, a book out about uh, the, the ideology in, in Russia that's in part replaced um, the ideas of communism, at least in terms of, uh, of Russian influence abroad and, and rule at home. And uh, it's about um, Russian nationalism and, and specifically the ideology known as a new Eurasianism, um, which sees a, a, a role for Russia as a, a power in Eurasia. Um, and the book is called Black Wind, White Snow by Charles Clover. Well, Andrew Kramer, I want to thank you very much for being with us again on Radio Curious. Thank you very much. Andrew Kramer, born and raised in Ukiah, California, is a New York Times reporter based in Moscow, Russia. Kramer, fluent in Russian, has been reporting from Moscow for the Times since 2006. The book Andrew Kramer recommends is Black Wind, White Snow, The Rise of Russia's New Nationalism by Charles Clover. This program was recorded on March 27, 2017. There are now over 630 archive editions on Radio Curious. That's radiocurious.org. They're free for you to enjoy, download, and share as you wish. 
We appreciate your cards, letters, and ideas about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. Curious at Radio Curious, 280 North Oak, Ukiah, California, 95482-707-462-6541. Angie Boyles Askham is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.